0: A um, couple of things.
1: This is the first um, class on the Aeneid, the overview.
0: Let's see. I, I've got to warn you. To, to, Let's we'll see what happens today. Um, I wanted to take today and treat it as an overview, so I'm not going to do practically anything in the Aeneid tonight. Um, I, know, I know how busy the... Holidays get, and I'd be surprised if everybody had, anybody had time to read. I know you did. I did. You did, I know. Um, but what I'd like to do is, is do an overview to put everything in perspective and then raise some questions and point out some things um, to bring us back to the starting point where we began and this whole notion of prophecy. Um, it's really important to me not to teach this just as literature. Um, so I want to keep coming back to that and I've got some things to read to you tonight and they're a little bit lengthy so I, I hope you'll be patient I'm not at ease with that because I really feel it's important you know from from our work together how important I believe going to the text is that we get in it um, because that's where the reality is in that text um, but I. I've I really think these things are important and I've I've got a couple of things on my mind, one of them is Dante's The Commedia we're going to be doing that shortly and so in some ways this is a lead-up, Virgil's Dante's Guide in The Divine Comedy, if you don't know that you will when you pick it up and it will be important for you to understand why Pope Francis has asked the church to read The Divine Comedy. The timing of that is amazing. He's asking all of us, the church, to read The Divine Comedy this year. So the, the timing of this is extraordinary. Lots of people are going to read it and miss what you guys will be able to see because you've done this epic tradition now. And uh, Virgil won't just be a character to you in that book. Um, because I hope because of the work we do on the Aeneid you will see, feel, see and feel all that's behind Virgil um, and the reason Dante chose him to be his guide. He didn't choose Homer, he didn't choose Plato, he didn't choose Aristotle, who he calls the master. At the beginning of the um, Divine Comedy when Virgil and Dante go into hell, they will see the great um, pagan um, men and women and the one that stands out among all of them is Aristotle. He calls him the master. He didn't choose Aristotle as his master, and Aristotle was fundamental to everything that Saint Thomas did. And um, so Dante had lots of reasons for choosing other people. He didn't. He chose Virgil. So it's going to be really important um, to understand why. And in my own mind, it's it's going to be really important for us to think again, more deeply about poetry and what it's doing. You may get tired of hearing me do this all the time, and batting you over the head with reading lyric poems to you and um, telling you that it's, it's a higher form of knowledge than science and you know, the, the other kinds of knowledge that people people believe is so solid today in poetry. is the, One of the opening lines in, the, in the, the Divine Comedy, Dante tries to go up this hill and gets beaten back and then he says, I heard a voice that had grown faint. That's his description of Virgil, because who reads poetry anymore? Dante knows that. Um, So, what I'd like to do is set out again um, some important principles about poetry and look at some things more closely about what I'm going to call today, what other people have called the symbolic imagination, the kind of knowledge that poetry gives us um so we will start we will start the actual chapters next week so for next week uh, books one and two so you don't have any excuse now for not reading um or reading it over um, <laughs> um, um one
1: and two and one two and three sorry one and two or one two three
0: Oh, is it one? one two, three. It's yeah. It's what? Right. So we're going to be reading in, in groups of three. That's right, because we've got four weeks. So we will spend the next four weeks. Next week we will we will actually begin the poem itself. Oh, I'm going to ap- I'm going to point out some things today and, and look at the things, but I won't go into the text tonight. Um, maybe just incidentally. Um, and then we will spend four weeks on the Aeneid, reading doing three books each week. That should be manageable because I don't think it's really that hard to read. Um, After which time we'll start The Divine Comedy. Um, And then we will talk then about whether or not to go on with this or stop or see what people want to do. I think that's it. Um, okay, let me, I'm going to read two poems tonight, um, and one of them I'm going to read again at the end of our work on linea. Um Where are Bob and Marcellus, are they in the reading right. group? In the room. Particularly eager to see what they're going to say about this because uh, they've got strong feelings about what's going on politically in our country, just as I do. But, um, I want to read Aeneas at Washington now, and I'm going to read him again when we finish because by then I think you're going to see why Alan Tate wrote this poem. And just imagine this what would happen if Aeneas were in Washington today? What would happen? I mean, that. I mean, that your speculation, but anyway, I want to read this today at the outset of our work. Alan Tate is an American poet. He, in my mind, he is probably the best literary critic of our time. Um, there have been times when I've read his work and have been moved to tears. I'm not exaggerating any. I I mean, I've read a lot of critics as a as a teacher of literature. I've had to. Alan Tate is a is a special person to me because of his rare. He's a poet himself, his rare insight into literature and the depth of humility that brings to what he does. He he has um, extraordinary powers of insight, so he's taken on major critics some of whom I I really admire. And he's done it in an amazing way. This is one of his poems. Um, "Aeneas at Washington. I'm going to read it today to begin our work on Virgil and then I'm going to read it at the end. Because you'll have a better sense of who Aeneas is by then, and it I will just be an interesting question for me to ask you. Why would Tate have written this poem, Aeneas at Washington? What would it mean to have Aeneas in Washington today, given the state of our government? So, Just hold that on your mind. So these are the two poems for tonight. Richard Wilbur's Love Calls to Things of the World, Alan Tate's Aeneas at Washington. Love Calls Us to Things of the World is by Richard Wilbur, who was a poet laureate. If you know, um, America never had a poet laureate until recently. England all did forever. Um, and Richard Wilbur was a poet laureate. Um, I think he's still alive. He, he may have recently died, but um, he's contemporary. Um, extraordinary poet. Um, very classical and urbane. Um, my our middle son's wife did her thesis, her senior thesis on Wilbur in her senior year. Um, the I put together a couple of poems. You can read them on your own mind. On the, on the back pages, just a perfect poem. I mean, a World Without Objects is a Sensible Emptiness is a, is a difficult poem, but it's very Catholic in the sense. The poem is recognizing that it's... It's in our nature as human beings to respond to physical things. We're not angelic. We need things. They arouse love. We are incarnate creatures. God did not make us angelic. In fact some of the things that I'm going to read later go so directly to that. Wilbur is acknowledging that in this poem a world without objects is a sensible emptiness. It's, it would be nothing for us because as humans who live in our bodies we depend on a sensible world to engage us. When we approach the condition of angels and, I'm, and by the way I would say there's lots of aspects to, to Protestant beliefs and to Gnostics do away with the body. I, I hope you recognize that how fatal that would be to Catholics because the real presence is at the center of our faith. So the human body, mean, this is going to be one of the important points I'll make later, is absolutely essential. Dealing with it, suffering in it, is absolutely essential to our faith. The cross we're asked to bear. So it's a difficult poem, but I, but I hope you'll read it. I'm just going to read Love Calls Us to Things of the World it's it's a poem about that moment when the speaker awakens to dawn he looks out in that half sleep, half awake state of mind where the unconscious is still playing a role in his perceptions and some of the things of the unconscious get projected (coughs) out into this world of things Um, and it's telling about our nature in that moment so it's about this man waking up and looking out the window and seeing a clothesline, clothes on a clothesline. But he's bringing to that perception his sleepiness, the unconsciousness out of which he's just come. Okay? And the other is Tate's poem, is in the Washington. Richard Wilbur, Love Calls Us to Things of This World. The eyes open to a cry of pulleys, and spirited from sleep, The astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. Some are in bed sheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly there they are. Now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear with a deep joy of their impersonal breathing like the clothes have turned into angels. Now they're flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and swaying like white water. And now of a sudden they swoon down into so wrapped a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it's about to remember, from the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries Oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in the rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, Bring them down from their ruddy gallows, let them be a clean linen for the backs of thieves, let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. Excellent. Alan Tates in the is at Washington. Mm-hmm. I myself saw, furious with blood, Neoptolemus at his side the black Atride, Hecuba and the hundred daughters, Priam cut down, his filth drenching the holy fires. In that extremity I bore me well a true gentleman, valorous in arms, disinterested and honorable. Then fled that was a time when civilization run by the few fell to the many and crashed to the shout of men clang of arms. Cold victualling I seized, I hoisted up the old man, my father, upon my back, in the smoke made by sea for a new world saving little, a mind imperishable if time is, a love of past things tenuous as the hesitation of receding love. To the reduction of uncited literals we brought chiefly the vigor of prophecy, our hunger-breeding calculation and fixed triumphs. I saw the thirsty dove in the glowing fields of Troy, hemp ripening and tawny corn, the thickening blue grass, all lying rich forever in the green sun. I see all things apart, the towers that men contrive, I too contrived long, long ago. Now I demand little. The singular passion abides its object and consumes desire in the circling shadow of its appetite. There was a time when the young eyes were slow, their flame steady beyond the firstling fire. I stood in the rain, far from home at nightfall, by the Ptolemaic. The great dome lit the water. The city my blood had built, I knew no more. While the screech owl whistled his new delight, consecutively dark. Stuck in the wet mire, 4,000 leagues from the ninth buried city, I thought of Troy, what we had built her for. on the death of America. Um, the, I included the cross in it with, um, in East Washington. Um, it's one of the most obscure poems I've ever read, so I offer it to you just because, by the way, if, if you don't know anything about Alan, Alan Tate, he was a southerner, a gentleman, and he, um, his personal story is tragic to read and, and, and the kind of mother he had and the father he had and what he had to suffer growing up. Um, He he, he ended up at Vanderbilt with the the fugitives, I don't know if you're aware of that group, a group of men who gathered together and wrote that book called I Take My Stand, I'll Take My Stand, which was the agrarian answer to the North encroaching on the South, so it's very Southern in temperament. A group of them gathered at Vanderbilt and, and they became some of the most notable writers and poets of the 20th century, Tate was an undergraduate and joined that group and became greatly influenced in them and became a poet himself, went to Europe. Uh, there's a wonderful anecdote of um, Frost, this was in Europe, I think in Paris. Frost was holding forth on poetry, Robert Frost was over there and Tate walked into the room and was introduced to him and Robert Frost immediately began to analyze his dialect. <laughs> <laughs> because he had such a fine ear. I mean, all poets do. All poets are musicians by heart. And um, Tate knew all of the great American writers. Um, while he was there, he converted to Catholicism in late in his life. Um, it's a touching, touchy story. And by the way, I, I included in the, the packet that I gave you um, a critical, a critical. Um, review. Um, the Catholic Sensibility of Alan Tate. Yes. You all have that? Yes. Does everybody have a copy? I do I'd like to ask you all to read. <laughs> <Guess you do. laughs> um, I'd like to ask you all to read it just because he's an extraordinary figure. Um, and his poem Here. on Aeneas of Washington is so good. But but um, what I'm gonna read to you tonight is largely from Alan Tate. Um, So I I think you'll find this little biographical sketch um, moving it's about a man's journey to the faith and what it meant for him and and you'll see the effect of it in in what I'm going to read tonight so if you could read that I I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. Now somehow I'm going to get through this course. I, I hope it's not going to be as incoherent as I'm afraid it's going to be, but because I put all of this together um, too much in the last moment. Um, so let's see what happens here. Um, okay. Uh, when we started our work together, I made a number of claims that must have seemed preposterous to you and I would think would be seemed preposterous to lots of people. Um, those claims are basically that there's a prophetic quality to literature. You know that, I've been pushing that now from the beginning of our time together. Um, and if you go back to that time, um, that that timesheet I gave you where the two traditions unfold together, the prophetic and literary, remember? If you go back and take a look at it, you'll see how closely they line up and and the amazing things they say about each other. I said then that the prophetic nature of literature tends to come out of human suffering, great suffering, generally sometimes joy, but most often suffering. And I want to expand that definition now. remember the difference that I made was between the kind of prophecy that comes because God speaks directly directly to chosen men, Isaiah, Daniel, Moses, um, David, whoever whoever they are. So what they write, what they left us with is God speaking directly to them and to us. In literature I claim um, the prophetic character is different. It generally comes out of human suffering, so it's on this side of prophecy. It's not directly from God, but it, but it seems to be aware of something divine in ways um, other kinds of human knowledge aren't. Um, I just, I just lost of thought. And the poets who speak this prophetic literature, that I, this literature that I'm calling prophetic, seem to be particularly susceptible to inspiration. They seem to be particularly close to the gods. So, so they can reveal things about us that other people can't. That's what largely makes that literature prophetic, that they seem to be able to go to places to reveal things to us that other people cannot. I want to expand that today to say this um, that there's also this aspect of literature Um, if we recognize prophecy is God's word to us and literature is somehow sharing in that because of the poets who seem to be particularly sensitive or receptive to God that this prophetic element is carried over into different cultures so that what we got from Homer was something about the gods that helped throw a light on the Greek culture what we're going to get from Virgil is the way in which he learned from Homer and also received something divine that gets carried over into the Roman culture the reason I'm saying that is, if you, or one of the reasons is not only to understand how important it is because, in that sense, it, we can see that God speaks to all people. The question is whether the poets who are doing the work that they do have a, are revealing something about God or not, and clearly some are, at least that's my argument, you know that Homer is close to God, that he's showing us something about human beings that's important for us to know what he shows us lines up with everything that we know in prophecy so or take some of the lyric poets the wind hover the supernatural love poem what we see is this prophetic element speaking directly to a culture and answering its needs so even if the prophetic school stopped with the coming of christ which is what the church maintains right prophets stop catholics believe we are Priests, prophets, kings. But there's a prophetic element in us. We're supposed to be speaking. Poets have a, a holy calling in a sense in carrying on that, that specific calling, that prophetic calling, but applying it to particular cultures. So in, with Homer, we saw that going on with the Greek world. In Virgil, we're going to see it happening in a Roman world. If you look at the timeline I gave you, You'll see that one of the reasons for continuing this course, if people want to go on, it may be too much because this is a long work. But if you look at it, remember at the very first class I said Shakespeare's *Merchant of Venice* and *Othello*, Melville's *Moby Dick*, um, Faulkner's trilogy, all speak directly to our culture, who we are as a people. So they're doing with those works what Homer did with Greece and Virgil did with Rome. So this prophetic spirit gets carried over, Um, it's as if it carries on the work of God in specific cultures. Um, Now remember, at my last class I tried to be very clear, I'm not claiming prophetic status for these, works of literature, I don't want to be heretical here, I don't want to chase people away, but what I am saying is that there's a prophetic aspect to it, and and in, in some sense it's a help to us to, to be able to receive that, to see it, to learn from it, to be supported, strengthened in our efforts, in our faith. So, um, that was my first claim, that, that um, works The really great works of literature have a prophetic quality to them. Um, Along those same lines, that nearly all great literature, certainly many of the works from ancient literature and the works that we've uh, been reading, give us foreshadowings, traces of Christ. I've made the argument, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, that that in both of those works we've got um, clear foreshadowings of Christ and the parousia, the second coming, the return of the king, um, and all all that is startling um, when the king returns, the judgment that takes place, both in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the extraordinary way, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the extraordinary way in which the whole action in the Iliad and the Odyssey is taken out of the past and brought into the present. Remember we talked about that, that the epic looks back to a um, a closed world. You you enter into it through memory. That's why the poets invoke mimosine, the memory. But the whole action shows um, a hero coming out of that past into the present. So in remarkable ways these poems are foreshadowings of Christ. The the ancient poets seem to have this sense that that something more was going on, um, something extraordinary in humans and and we can say that in some sense Christ fulfills it there just as he did everything that took place in the Old Testament. Um, I also claim that along with Genesis and Exodus, the Iliad and the Odyssey um, should be seen as the founding works of Western civilization. So that this whole work of carrying the prophetic spirit out into different cultures um, um, takes on a a very special meaning in Western civilization. I think there are reasons for that and and I I believe it's because we are the only civilization in which philosophy and poetry um, are given the dignity the importance that they deserve and because they are, that's not true in the East not true in the East the the philosophy that came out of Greece um, had this notion of the Logos that was absolutely compatible with the Old Testament um, and the coming of Christ so that philosophy and poetry line up with scripture, with prophecy in Western civilization in a way that's not true of other cultures so we don't find cultures rich in poetry or philosophy the way we in, in China or Africa the way we do in Western civilization so there's something special going on in Western culture it's important for us to recognize it and nurture it that's why we should love school um, and learning um, um, so, um, I, I suggested, encourage you to think about these two works as the founding works of Western civilization. And uh, remember that the theme of both of them is a refounding. The, a, a, a people is struggling with some disorder, they can't get free of it. A hero is singled out to bear those disorders, and with the help of the god, he brings something new to a people that makes it possible for that people to take on a new identity, a new new founding. So this theme of a divinely appointed task, that a hero has to bear burdens that others don't. Achilles, Odysseus, they all look forward to Christ in that way, in amazing ways. Um, And finally, this is the fourth of my claims, the last claim that I made was that language is more important than we sometimes admit that the analogies between poetry and the word, Christ is the Logos, were more than superficial or artificial. Poetry wasn't simply a fanciful or flowering way of rendering the world. In fact, it, um, it offers us a kind of wisdom that no other kind of literature, no other kind of knowledge can give it. That's what I've been saying all along. In fact, I suggested poetry, at least the very best of it, is capable of revealing Christ in action. Not in abstractions, but concretely in the world as we know it. Remember that term, in ali, in, in alio essa, the Latin. In alio essa. In another mode. But literature gives us an image of reality in another mode. So when Hopkins writes The Windhover and he gives us an image of Christ, it's he's present in action in nature. Um, as Catholics we're, we're supposed to be more alive, alert, awake to the presence of Christ around us. The value of poets is that they help us to recover that sense when for most of it it gets dulled. Um, And we talked about the importance of of language in the last couple of talks, meetings we had, um, particularly in the Odyssey. Because remember, um, in the opening invocation of the Odyssey, Homer describes the fools, the companions, as not getting home. And the word for fools in Greek was napios, fools, childlike, they don't know language. We talked about the importance of language, the, the Cyclops could not see the irony when he said, nobody is hurting me. We know that. So it's only through language that we can enter into a deeper level of reality, and the poet is the one who helps penetrate that depth. So we talked about the hidden meaning of words like calypso, which itself means concealed, for which we get um, um, apocalypse, the book of Revelation where all things will be uncovered, one of the values of Revelation, the book of Revelation, is that it helps through language it helps take us into a mystery that ultimately will be completely revealed. But it, it, it takes us partially in and makes it possible for us to experience that mystery here. Um, so um, the, the importance of language can't be um, stated strongly enough. And along those same lines, remember I asked the question repeatedly as we, as we did our work together, if the major theme of the epics is a refounding, how many people actually involved in the action of the story understand that, are aware that that refounding is going on? How many men in the Iliad understand that something new has entered that world? Remember we talked about how the whole action of the Iliad reverses itself at the end so all the things that are set in motion are undone the, um, the ransoming, the gifts, you know um, the quarreling <coughs> it's all reversed are the men aware of it? Are so one of the questions that I asked you that went to that timeline I just, I just bring it over here to you remember we talked about um, The Jews coming to the promised land? Here in this, at this point. Expecting that that the promised land would be this new city, this new thing on earth. And um, Christ's disciples kept expecting that he would be the Savior, the Messiah that would come as a conquering hero and answer all their problems. So one of the things that these poems leave us with is this question of, of how much the people in the poem are actually, a, the people historically who lived the war, or in the, the Aeneid, Aeneas and all the Romans who were gonna you know come to Italy and found Troy, are they really aware of the significance of what's going on? Or is it good readers whose, life, whose imaginations and hearts are changed so that new <coughs> cities, new foundings take place here and those new foundings, it's like discipleship, begin to be taken outward so that it's not like a political structure is created and imposed on a world. It's this movement of spirit that happens in individuals who live this and make it real and carry it out. So, how are we to understand refounding? Is a refounding in terms of bricks and mortar, walls? Or is it something new entering? And how many people in the poem understand it? How many pe- how many readers actually wrestle with that question? So those are some of the things that we that you know we worked with that um, that that the poetry is making us aware of. Um, so let me let me pick this up and get to this because this is. And then what I'd like to do is just briefly talk about some things um, relating specifically um, to Virgil, and and then call it a night. But I want to read uh, I want to read something to you. Um, um, This is from Alan Tate. Um, Louise Cowan, who just died, was a professor emeritus at UD and who happened to be my dissertation director. Wonderful woman, just died recently. And um, one of the last publications um, was a book called. Um, for decades I think she collected Alan Tate's essays and wrote the introduction to that collection and um, it's, so it's out in print again. Um, in that collection you, you, we we become aware that as Tate became older he became more troubled and more preoccupied with cultural problems in our country and particularly the importance of life. I'm going, to, I'm going to use Tate a number of times, next time we meet I'm going to quote something and when we start The Divine Comedy I'm going to quote something again Be- because he's such a good reader of these works. He was so aware of the Protestant and the secular influence on modern Catholics and wrote specifically to that in a number of essays. One of them is called The Symbolic Imagination and the other one is called The Angelic Imagination um, and if you connected with what I said a few minutes ago, you'll, you'll you'll see that the angelic imagination is not a healthy one and it's one too many people in our culture are given to today because of the Protestant character and the secular cast of our mind. Um, Tate's argument, and this is so orthodox, it's following really St. Thomas and Dante, that we're human beings, we're, we're physical creatures, we're not angels, we're not angelic. so. F- any knowledge that's real to us has to begin in the body and the whole effort of the modern mind is to, after Descartes and the modern, all the modern ideas Descartes, Kant, Hegel, you go on, they're all in their heads they're, they're, they're working with systems that they've created in their mind they're not dealing with the sensible world anymore, they're out of contact with it when we lose touch with the sensible world our imaginations are hurt badly And that's his concern, and that's one of his concerns for poetry, because poetry as opposed to mathematics or the sciences, always returns us to the concrete natural world. He says it's the world where Dante began. The the word, the woman in the street, Beatrice, is where it begins for him. Um, So he was particularly concerned that, that with the influence of modern philosophies and the sciences, we lost our way into the natural order. And when that happened, when our roots were cut, our imaginations were um, undercut as well. Cut off from his imagination he's lost the power to feel or to feel in ways that are in in accord with the natural way the mind knows. This is Tate. To bring together various meanings meanings at a single moment of action is to exercise what I here shall call the symbolic imagination but the line of action must be unmistakable. We must never be in doubt about what's happening for at a given stage of his progress the hero does one simple thing and one only. The symbolic imagination conducts an action through analogy of the divine to the human, of the natural to the supernatural, of the low to the high, of time to eternity." Through both the alien and the Odyssey, Homer never let us forget that what was going on on the human level was always immediately involving the gods, at every point in time. If you read Shakespeare closely, you'll see the same thing. Dante, the same thing. Dostoevsky factors when you get into moderns, but when you get into modern secularists, that analogy is cut. The ties to the divine are lost, and we're in what the modern writer will call the naturalistic world we're confined to our senses and only what the senses see. So one of the things the modern writer has lost is a sense of the Spirit's role in causality, a sequence of events. You know, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm assuming this, as, as Catholics you've all had an experience where you look back at certain events in your life and suddenly it's like somebody hits you over the head and you say, holy cow, he was there. This happened, it was too strange for it to happen any other way, that when coincidences pile up you go, holy cow. The modern writer can't see that because he doesn't see the causalities of the spirit in time. Tate's arguing that this, the, the, the poet who was who rich with the symbolic imagination puts those two points together, links them in his stories. So two points come together to reveal something prophetically, The divine enters time in the human order and it shows us things about ourselves that nobody else can. Um, Tate saw Dante as the great exemplar of the symbolic imagination because he always started with his senses, what was right in front of him. If you know the Protestant mind, it's, Jesus saved me. He's already saved. Why bother with the senses? As a matter of fact, the Protestant believes the senses are corrupt anyway because one of the differences between the Protestant imagination and the Protestant is the Protestant believes everything was corrupt with the fall. All's depraved. That's Milton's term. All depraved. The Catholic does not believe everything was depraved. He believes we were wounded with concupiscence, that our reason and our faculties are still intent, intact. So, the Protestant has no use for reason, ratio, fide ratio, faith and reason. He jumps to faith. So, the whole human order is circumvented. You get around it. That's the angelic mind, what Tate's calling the angelic mind. Dante always started with what was immediately in front of him, with his senses. And he treated what was in his senses by revealing in what ways it was connected to some final end. That's the value of Dante. So, those two orders come together always. It's what Tate's calling the symbolic imagination. I mean, th- stop and think about it. How, I mean, I, I know this for myself, I know it from all my experiences. Is, is it, isn't it fair to say that as Americans, most of us are over aspiring? We want too much. We don't recognize our human limits because we're striving, so the ordinary thing in front of us gets passed by too often? Maybe just for myself, I don't know, but I'd say it's so... T- Americans always have to win. They have to, have, they have to beat everybody. There's, it's, it's like ancient Rome. We have to be victorious. We have to have power. Well, how often in the search of that power do we overlook the ordinary thing and whatever meaning it has for us? When we go to Mass, a, a Mass is a very ordinary thing. There it is on the altar. A meal, you know, day by day, day by day. Um, Tate says this of Dante, It was, however, high the phrases, the common thing from which Dante always started, as it was certainly the greatest and most common to which he came. His images were the natural, inevitable images, the girl in the street, the people he knew, the language he learned as a child. In them the great diagrams were perceived, from them the great myths opened. By them he understands the final ends. So the starting point for the man with the symbolic imagination is the ordinary thing, because God created the world. Um, If he did, then he should be present in every ordinary thing. The wind hover. You know, the supernatural the carnation. I mean, just think about the poems that we've read together. The the man waking to laundry Mm -hmm. (laughs) and seeing, you know, the the bodiless angels in in the laundry. This is the simple secret of Dante, but it's a secret which is not necessarily available to Christian poets today. The Catholic faith has not changed since Dante's time, but the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poetry, from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic and is not distinguishable, doctrinal differences aside, poetry by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Atheists. Where are the Catholic artists today? Every once in a while there seem to be signs of a revival, truly. I mean, in music and even some poetry. Um, um, Joya, you know, the poet that I read is Catholic. Um, Wilbur is Catholic in Sensibility. Tate. Um, Catholic poets have lost, along with their heretical friends, the power to start with a common thing they have lost the gift for concrete experience the abstraction of the modern mind has obscured their way into the natural order nature offers to the symbolic poet clearly denotable objects in depth laundry a bird i have to think help me out what some of the other poems were you about? carnation carnation but what else um, Nature offers to the symbolic poet clearly denotable objects in depth and in the round, which yield the analogies to the higher syntheses. The modern poet rejects the higher synthesis or tosses it in a vacuum of abstraction. If he looks to nature, he spreads the clear visual image and a complex of metaphor from one catacresis to another through Aristotle's permutations of genius and species. He cannot sustain the prolonged analogy the second and superior kind of figure that Aristotle doubtless had in mind when he spoke of metaphor as the key to the resemblances of things and the mark of genius it's the person who sees the connection between ordinary things and something more um, um, who's showing the real gifts of mind that we have been given by nature So, it's through the symbolic imagination that two things are brought together and shown to be somehow linked secretly. Um, But the end effect of experiencing the symbolic imagination is just not knowledge. It's just not to know something. For anybody who's read St. Thomas, you know that in the act of knowing, we become one with the thing known. The other effect that takes place in this act is that certain motions are evoked, aroused, that help us to identify that thing. So that that's why at the very beginning, I remember in the very first class that I said, it's so I know I know that you all can't read, but reading a work makes a difference because in reading it we participate more fully in it. We become more one with what goes on. So when Achilles died, or it's even going to be more true for the Aeneid because pain is a more constant in Virgil's Aeneid. You cannot read a chapter, a book, in Virgil without some great loss taking place again and again. He's called Melancholy Virgil because there's a wound. The, the love is so present and he's constantly experiencing the loss of those things loved. So. <coughs> So the end result of the work of symbolic imagination is, um, is not just bringing two points together to form a whole, a kind of higher synthesis of knowledge, it's, I'm going to argue, empathy, that it helps us to feel, it strengthens our capacity to feel for others. It's one of the effects of good poetry. This is um, Tate again that the gift of analogy was not Dante's alone, every medievalist knows. The most striking proof of its diff- diffusion and the most useful example for my proposal that I know is the letter of St. Catherine of Siena to brother Raymond of Capua. A young Sienese, Niccolo Toldo, had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death. Catherine became his angel of mercy, giving him daily solace the meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end. Now I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it as a common thing to make it real, literally and actually. How many of us take Christ out into the world of living? It's just a tough... Do we make him present in our lives by what we do? St. Catherine does not report it. She recreates it so that its analogical meaning is confirmed again in blood that she has seen, and this is how she does it. So this is not an abstraction in Catherine's mind. This is one of the things that makes her a saint. This is not an abstraction the way it is for so many of us so often. It's not an idea in our head about blood or the eucharist or it's a living presence being worked out. This is from her. Then the condemned man came like a gentle lamb and seeing me he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he had received the sign I said down to the bridal my sweetest brother. For soon shalt thou be in the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness, and I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said, Not nothing except Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head into my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness, and saying, I will. When he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet, and so great fragrance of blood, that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from him. She's holding his head, here mm-hmm. It is deeply shocking, this is Tate again, as all proximate incarnations of the word are shocking, whether in Christ and the saints, or Dostoevsky, James Joyce, Henry James. I believe it was T.S. Eliot who made accessible again to an ignorant generation a common Christian insight when he said that people cannot bear very much reality. I take this to mean that only extraordinary courage, perhaps even genius, can face the spiritual truth in its physical body. Flaubert said that the artist, the soldier, and the priest face death every day, so do we all. Yet it's perhaps nearer to them than to other men. It is their particular responsibility. Clearly the poet is included, if he's the kind of poet that we're talking about here, the work he does, will make him face the condition that saints face, the kind of discipline, the self-sacrifice, the self-denial to do what they do. When Saint Catherine rests in so great a fragments of blood, it is no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis but with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood. St. Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in a cold Tuldo's blood clotted on her dress. She smelled the two bloods not alternately, but at one instant. Two things are brought together in a single act compounded of spiritual insight and physical perception so what I'm proposing here is that the that, that the very great poets are the ones who help bring these two points together um, and um, hopefully deepen our insight and our capacity to feel these things in our own life um, so let me stop and breathe for a minute because that's <laughs> I know I, I'm assuming that was heavy, I don't know, tell me your response What's your response to that? Is that too abstract or?
1: No, I mean, I, as you were reading, I was thinking about things that had happened in my life and the things that go on. It, it was pretty profound.
0: What I read or it, what both? What you read, yeah. both. I mean, it's yeah. kind of
1: like, you know, you're reading it and you're explaining it, at the same time, as you're doing that, I'm reflecting and it's, and it's I, I, I can't explain it. You see, This is this is the issue, is that these poets are so good, or these people that write are so, they're they so talented that they can take a feeling and, and transform it into, into words that make you understand it and visualize what's going on. These things happen, to me, I just can't verbalize them. I, I'm not a verbally kind of... <laughs> yes, you are. No, I mean, I am, but I just, I don't... I would not be able to do what the poets do. Yeah,
0: they're creatures.
1: It's something that you emote within yourself, but it's something that, you, the thing is they're emoting and they're also being able to share it versus just taking it in.
0: I mean, one of the reasons, I think, for, as I look at them, one of the ways in which they approach the saintliness that Tate's talking about, um, this, these poets—I mean—I hope it's clear—but these poets are not writing their own emotion. Well, they're bringing, they put certainly put their heart into what they're doing, but they're not somebody sitting down and emoting or writing their diary or personal experience. They're creating a, the ones that we've been reading are creating a world that's larger than us, that um, expresses a vision that they have of something human in us that relates to the divine, to help us see and feel. Things they obviously do, or they couldn't write these well,
1: that's things. What I, that's, what I to, that's what I was trying to explain, you said it much better than I
0: did. I thought you said it fine. I don't think so. Okay.
1: It's just, I, they, they put things, they put the world into words so that you can then experience it for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's
0: probably a better yeah. way of saying it. <laughs> any, any other... <laughs> I, I don't want to press it, just, I just, I, I hope that wasn't too abstract is what I'm concerned about them.
1: us us think. <laughs> yeah, good. Think a lot.
0: <laughs> okay, let's, we don't have much time, but let me, let me um, cover some things in Virgil to get everybody going. Um, remember two things that we're bringing forward right now. The great theme of the Iliad was Kleos, honor. What we saw in the Aeneid was that two peoples, two entire peoples, and not only confined to those peoples, but including other peoples around them, because we know from Troy that people were coming from all over the Mideast to to support Priam in his battle against the Greeks. So vast peoples came together in this war and and Homer picks up the story in the ninth and a half year, and we learn that people have been killing each other for nine and a half years. We know that there are causes to the war that go back into the past. Paris's slight of um, Hera was one of them. But we also got those backstories. Laomedon had betrayed the gods earlier. Um, So there are all these treacheries that exist in the past that, that are behind this battle. And when we enter it, it's pretty clear, the first response of most, certainly the kids that I've worked with over my life as a teacher, response of most kids, and lots of them Catholic is Achilles was just this big crybaby, he should have swallowed his pride and stayed in the war. I, I think, it's, I hope it's clear that if he stayed in the war, that war, there's no reason to believe that war wouldn't have gone on for another nine and a half years, because there's some disorder, something's wrong. And nobody can answer it. He withdraws from the war. Um, the picture we have is of a culture in which people use each other as objects. There's no reason they can't kill them. They see each other in terms of booty. Their worth as humans is in terms of material things. How is that different from today? I mean, I, I, to my knowledge, i, mean, I, I I'm not a young kid. I can't look at New York. I can't look at any other world and see a difference. Most human beings, most of us, sadly, treat each other as objects. We use each other, and we tend um, we tend to see each other in terms of material: the job, the money I bring in, the status that I have. Um, the, we we live in a celebrity culture, with people starving for attention. That's what dominates the internet. Turn on the internet, and, and nineteen of the twenty headlines will be about celebrities and what they wear
1: Yeah,
0: so we live in what we see in the Iliad is for nine and a half years men have been treating each other as objects when Achilles withdraws and people start dying because they miss his worth is what he can do Agamemnon sends an embassy and if you go back over that chapter and read it it's it's, it's like the whole stock market in an offering I mean, There's multiple cities Women, wealth, um, It was like looking at a wealthy Arab in you know, the Middle East, he just would have given him everything. Thinking that he could bribe him back in. And it's at that point that Achilles clearly has learned something. he says, "Such honor is a thing I need not." I'm honored in Zeus, That's the turning point, the first major turning point, the first one is, is withdrawal. But that's really a major, major turning point that points towards the end that because he's withdrawn from that world I don't believe Achilles understands it, he's not a reflective person, but something intuitive in him is aware that there's a human dignity to persons that can't be um, represented in that way. So he says, I think I'm honored in Zeus's ordinance such, such honors a thing I need not. He refuses and it's only after Petur- Georgios goes into the war, he dies, and Achilles comes back in, and it's at that point that he acknowledges his failure, he's the only man in the Iliad to admit his wrongs, that he let everybody down, and he returns to battle, and when he returns to battle, he doesn't know he's going to die. Remember, there's two choices that he faces, and I made the argument, that's a choice every human being faces, whether to live a long, comfortable life or a short life with honor, whether we're going to risk ourselves or whether we're going to avoid problems and sit on a couch and he makes his choice when he goes back into the war nobody can touch him Nobody. that's the return of the king the Perusia. remember all the descriptions of this light emanating from him nobody can touch him Um, and there's that almost comic scene with that trojan um, who asks that he be spared and Achilles says we're all going to die one day what makes you think we, we all have a reason for not wanting to die. I'm in the middle of a work. I don't want to die right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, truly. I, I mean, I think about this often. And I identify with it. Lycaon like was his name. You know, we've all got our reasons for not dying right now. But Achilles, I mean, the Iliad is about this moment when you make a choice and you turn from all the things that you've wanted too much, and suddenly you're free. It's so like an alcoholic saying I'm not going to drink anymore. Whatever the, whatever addictions we have when we say, that's it. No. And what we see is a different kind of man. And that's when all the reversals take place and we come into the present moment and that's where it ends. So, in, and the same sort of things happen, remember, with the Odyssey. Um, this story takes place after the fall of Troy. You get Odysseus going home and he has to experience all of these cities Whose many minds he learned of? Because the problem he's facing is he's got to go home and rule He's got to raise it. He's got to take care of a family So the question is how will he be able to bring any rule at home if he doesn't know the disorders of men? Remember when in back in Ithaca we, We'd set up Sparta and um, me out here. Sparta. Come on, you guys, you've done the reading now. <laughs> Sparta and um, Ithaca and Sparta and Pylos. Remember, we set up the three cities. Um, 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 Nestor's home in Pylos and, and Menelaus's home in Sparta. And the disorders, the fact that they lived in the past. So even back at Ithaca, the homes are struggling with these problems. And then what we see are all these various cities with their Specific kinds of disorders. He had to deal with Calypso and Circe. The, the, he had to learn to deal with the archetypal nature of woman. He's under their influence for nine of the nine and a half years. Eight of the nine and a half years away, he goes to the underworld and he learns from the queens that most women don't remember their husbands. They're too preoccupied with possessions and what they do with their homes. So he has to confront every aspect of life in order to come home, and when he does, there's that moment after he defeats the suitors. And remember that image of the body I gave you, the, the, ap- the rational, the appetites, yes. and how often the appetites dominate? Mm-hmm. He has to defeat a hundred suitors. I believe in some way that's an image of how numerous and how vast and how overpowering the problem is in trying to confront our appetites, overcome them. When he does, he and Penelope are reunited and there's that moment when the two of them are in bed and Athena stops time. Um, so the return of the king, the, 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 the moment of judgment, uh, the putting of things right, while most of the people in the world are living by their appetites, killing each other, using each other, um, that's the world that Homer shows us. And and interesting comment, I mean, interesting light is that when Odysseus goes to the underworld and he talks with Achilles, Achilles says, "I'd rather be thrall to a farmer than lord of the dead." So, having lost his life, he realizes the shortcomings of living entirely for honor. So that there's even a critique of the Iliad in the Odyssey. So, at the end of these two works, we we see these two extraordinary men. Achilles, we don't see Troy falling. We don't see Troy falling. Um, What we see is Achilles alive and um, remarkable as a hero. Homer's showing us these two great images of, of the dignity that human beings are capable of. That they have these extraordinary gifts. Um, Now, what you're going to discover if you, you, and I know some of you weren't read, but what you're going to, if you haven't been reading and you start reading, what you're going to discover immediately when you pick up the Aeneid is these two extraordinary figures who tower over the Greek world are presented in the most scornful way. They, They are, to say the least, unattractive men. They're not heroic at all. Virgil despises them. So what do we do with this? So one of the things I've got to ask at the outset here is as you read the Aeneid, think about the ways in which Virgil has taken that whole Homeric world into himself and changed it, and why it's changed. Why two such noble figures are presented in such ignoble ways in the Aeneid? What's going on? just two perspectives at the outset here. Here's two timelines. One of the most important things to realize about the Aeneid is um, that it's more historic. The Trojan War took place in 1200. Homer writes here. Virgil's writing 20 BC. As a Roman, he's far more conscious of Roman history. more Roman history gets into the Aeneid than any Greek history in Homer. The history that we get in Homer is mythic. It belongs to a mythic past, not a historic past. So the Iliad is much more historically grounded. It's more grounded in time. And we keep getting these prophecies in the Aeneid. Well, no wonder. Virgil can show, give these prophetic moments. It opens with Jupiter's prophecy, which will give the history of Rome, because it's all taken place. Right. So if we read it, we think, how would he have? Well, he, he knew it because he knew all of Roman history. Here's the structure of Here's the structure of the Aeneid. It begins, interesting, one of the most major changes takes place, and it's not even noted, and it, it, it should signal immediately One of the differences between the Virgilian Roman world and the Homeric world. It opens in Medius race when Aeneas and his men have just uh, buried Anchises' father. They set sail for Rome, they're blown off course, and they're driven to Carthage in Africa. It's while he's in Carthage that he will tell his story of his adventures, so this lines up with the Odyssey. And notice the differences between the kinds of experiences he has with all these cities. He's trying to found. He's, unlike Odysseus, Aeneas is trying to found a city. So it's an entirely different approach on his journey. Every one of the cities is dying. There's something wrong. He encounters a problem. All of that should tell us something about Rome. Because this whole thing is pointing towards Rome and what an extraordinary thing Rome is. And I, I just can't say that strongly enough so the book opens think about this he just buried his dad is odysseus's father alive he's alive he helps he helps do battle at the end of the book so in the odyssey the father's alive and well enough to help his son do battle with the suitors and the father when he starts the revolt the father of the suitors the aeneid opens with the father dead which means we are entering a world now with that past gone. And that's going to be only one of the first of many changes that say we are in a new world with special kinds of burdens that the Greeks never faced. What that means is what we have to see. He sits down and tells the story and then um, he gets comfortable with Dido, they have this affair that line up Aeneas' relationship with Dido with Odysseus' relationship with Circe and Calypso, because Dido's in time, she's the queen of Carthage, and if you know your Roman history, Rome's gonna go to war with Carthage, the Punic Wars dictate. The origins of those Punic Wars are in this relationship. So Virgil is looking at something sexual here, far more complex than anything we get in Homer. So look at that relationship and look at Dido as a woman really, really closely. Um, Mercury comes to him and says, what are you doing dallying with this woman, helping her build up her cities? You've got this vocation. Um, go do what you've been asked to do. Aenea's hair stands on her head. He's terrified. He t- goes to Dido, tells her he has to leave. She, he leaves as she watches him departing the ship. She's built a funeral pyre. She sets fire and kills herself which says something about one of the differences between Carthage and Rome so what is Virgil showing us about The best way that I can put it is the soul of a city the psyche of a city we learn from the Odyssey that all cities have a different psyche, a different soul, a different character Odysseus had to learn that to get home when he comes to Italy he will have to deal with all the civil wars and all the racial problems the Aeneid is one of the most important works of our time because it shows us the cost of trying to bring people from different races together under the same regime like we can't go on the news any time today enough white cop kills black I mean it just it just doesn't stop that the racial problems are buried but present the difficulties that he faces in order to produce this city in which all people can come together ie, something universal Catholic. The cost of what it means to be genuinely Catholic. This is this Rome that um, Aeneas is family. He has no clue what he's in for, or what this is going to mean. And one of the reasons we're reading this together is to find out what that Rome is. Exactly what it means that it's at the center of our faith. So, um, If if you go back, I'll just quickly mention this and then we'll stop. If you go back to the themes, um, the great themes of the Aeneid, the founding of Rome. What is Rome? What makes it different from Pylos, Sparta, Ithaca, all the other cities that um, Aeneas tries to found on the way? the great theme of translation that one of the problems he faces is a Roman, one of the problems that Rome faced to to achieve its Catholic, its universal character it had to take the past with it. it how does it translate a Greek world so different with these two great heroes, how does it translate that into a new character? Imagine people in Africa coming into the Catholic Church and suddenly um, moving to Texas to bring those two people completely different ethnic backgrounds together and still be Catholic, what kinds of problems that they would face. So this problem of translating, of of bringing something from the past forward and transforming it as you go, this is one of the greatest themes of the Aeneid and, and one of the reasons some people, T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis both said it, that the Aeneid is the sign of Europe growing up, coming to its maturity. Because what Virgil did was take calmer in the past and bring it forward and show what really has to happen for a person to grow up. And, and it changed the epic theme. It's not just a founding, it's carrying the past forward and changing it as we go. How many of us have the courage to actually pick up our past with all of its wounds, and change them as we go? It's the great theme of the Aeneas. So we move to a new virtue, from kleos and Nostos to pietas to something close to love. The theme of the vocation. Aeneas is told early on that he's to found a new city. Um, a calling it was implied in Homer's world, now it's explicit every time he makes an effort to found a city he finds he made a mistake, he did it wrong, he got it wrong, he has to keep trying turn a corner thinking he'll see it, he turns and it's gone he has to keep going so whatever Odysseus, remember was called long enduring Odysseus, whatever endurance meant for Odysseus (laughs) it is infinitely deepened here tradition belongs with this of changing the past, carrying the past forward. And at the center of it, I don't want to make this a big issue, but I don't want to ignore it either, is Juno's womb. She's the one who's angry at Aeneas. Remember, she's Hera. Yeah. Um, she was on the Greek side. To see Troy destroyed um, would have made her happy. But to know that Aeneas is going to go out and found another city infuriates infuriates her. So this question of woman In the open, in the second book, Aeneas—I can't tell you—something's going to happen with his wife. You're going to have to read. Yes. Something's going to happen with his wife, and when he gets to Rome, he's facing an arranged marriage. In fact, he's going to break it up. Turnus wants to marry Lavinia, and Turnus, who's one of the major Roman figures at the end, goes to war with Aeneas because of that marriage. So we're back in the Paris, (laughs) Helen world. So the question of how, how I hope it's clear by the, the epic is in, 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 in essence a masculine world, it has to do with masculine virtues but at the center of all these epics is woman so one of the things I want to talk about before we get to the end of this is Virgil's view of woman in the world and how it's like Homer's, how it changes and so let me stop there because um, we're supposed to be out here in five minutes, but any, any quick questions or <coughs> I know that's a lot, but um, it's it just really meant to be an overview to get you going and raise some questions for you as you go on with your reading this week. You too. I, we I hope you come back. I hope you come back.
1: I'll be here.
0: Good. good I'll drive Good. Good. Good drag other people. It would be good to see more people. There's so much good that people could take from this.
1: I think what was interesting for me is that when I was reading Iliad, I was thinking, okay, so where's the Trojan (laughs) horse? And it wasn't until we got to this point, right, you know, it's like, okay, that's what happened. And um, then I happened to watch the end of Troy on TV. It just happened to be flipping around. There was, and you know, What's his face? Brad Pitt was there, and he's giving the sword of of Troy to Aeneas and to his dad, who are like exiting the city. And Aeneas is this like young boy, like probably like fourteen or fifteen. I'm like, oh, my God, this is not the way it works. Oh, no,
0: it's sad what Hollywood does with his But it stuff. was
1: it was funny. Like, like oh my, God. I had to rewind it and say, well, what did he just do? <laughs> You, d- it was funny, you, know, because when you. You're never going to see this
0: stuff again in Hollywood the same way. When, no, once no, you no, read no, this stuff, it's going to yeah. it's going <laughs> to utterly change your world. I hope.
1: It was it was humorous. <laughs> it not to me. Who was that? <laughs> Wait a second. He wasn't enough. I
0: hope some of you guys take some of this cake, please, because we're not going to eat it. You've got to have family. You brought
1: that cake all the way. You, you got family coming. Take yeah. some, please. Yeah. Okay, good.
0: Good. Okay, Okay, next week we do books one through three. Okay? Sorry? Yeah, I'm gonna leave it like this.